today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Cash and Carry Kitchens. At the heart of Irish homes for over 40 years. Cashandcarrykitchens.ie Email todaycb at rte.ie Now, have a listen to this, and as you're listening to it, ask yourself this question. How big a threat does this pose to Irish culture? Well, 90 years ago this month, there was an anti-jazz music campaign in Ireland and it was causing quite a stir. Spearheaded by Catholic activists and cultural nationalists, it was characterised by one of its leading lights, Father Peter Conifrey, the parish priest of Clune in County Leitrim, as a crusade against music that was destroying virtue in the human soul. So what prompted the movement and what was its impact? Well, joining me to take look, a look back now at the anti-jazz campaign is Dermot Ferreter, Professor of Modern History at UCD. You're very welcome, Good Morning, to see Claire. you again. This is fascinating. Um, give us the context for the controversy. What was going on at the time to prompt this anti-jazz movement? Well, the devil was going on. Uh, if you look at the frequent pronouncements of the Catholic moral purity movements, you will see constant reference to the evil one ever setting his snare for unwary feet. Um, and there was a you know a succession of Lenten pastorals from the Catholic bishops that referred to the threat that was posed by new forms of amusements, as they were referred mm-hmm. to at the time. And they actually listed them in the late 1920s in one of the pastorals. Uh, chief among the traps uh, were the dance hall, that was first on the list, and then the bad book, the indecent magazine, and immodest fashion. And they're very much in keeping with a much wider international theme uh, about a fear of degeneracy. The idea that the political chaos and upheaval of previous years had generated uh, a disregarding for respectable norms Mm -hmm. um, and that there was essentially a moral panic. We have an Irish version of that and it's a very pronounced version for obvious reasons, particularly 100 years ago because of this desire to create a kind of a cultural self-sufficiency and reject external influences. And a lot of those themes find their way into this anti-jazz campaign from 1934. Spearheaded then uh, in County Leitrim. Yeah, it's interesting that it emerges there. Um, I mean, you refer to Father Peter Conifrey there. Uh, He was a native of Mohill. He was born in 1880 and he was from a family steeped in religion and nationalism. One of his uncles, also a priest, would have been very active in the land war. And he becomes a very interesting character. Uh, He serves in a number of different parishes. He is in uh, Leitrim, but before that he was also in Athlone. He was on the Longford uh, Calvin border. Um, It's important, I think, to note that even by the standards of the 1930s, he was not representative or he was quite an extremist. Mm-hmm. And at one stage in 1914, when he was a priest, he had walked barefoot from Athlone to Loch Derg uh, and he was moved to a new parish by the bishop <laughs> who regarded this as quite eccentric. But it gives you an indication, I suppose, of, of the extent to which he was devoted to the idea of making reparation for sin. And he was always encouraging others to do likewise. And he was also, he was a great proponent of the Gaelic League, even though he never learned to speak Irish, uh, interestingly. Really? Yeah. But he also was a big champion of native crafts and industries. And he wanted to restore... Uh, these traditional ways of doing doing things. And this jazz music um, would take people's eye off the Gaelic ball. Well, what was also relevant there were new forms of communication to RN, 
the radio station came into existence in 1926 and there was concern that there was a cosmopolitan approach to music broadcasting so that it wasn't just traditional Irish music that they were using other uh, music as well that was one part of it another part of it was the desire to promote traditional Irish music but also traditional Irish dance because there was a belief that these new forms of music were going to result in a form of dancing that was inherently Mm -hmm. un-Irish. So what we're dealing with in early 1933 is um, an attempt to try and mobilise people behind this banner. Um, And it's about denouncing pagan music, uh, jazz music. It's deeply racist and xenophobic, of course. It's very much in keeping with that fear and ignorance about Africa. Constant references to the African savages, the music of the African savages. The N-word is frequently employed. This is N-music. This is a subculture. It's lewd. It's suggestive. And the question for them as well, when they're organising a a rally in Mohill in January 1933, it's estimated there are about 3,000 people there. Uh, Who do they target in relation to what can be done about this? And they do identify, obviously, a need to educate people about Irish music and denounce those who are broadcasting foreign music. But there's also an intervention by Sean Ogo Kjallik, who was the general, uh, the secretary of the Gaelic League at that time. And he made a very intemperate intervention in which he targeted the Minister for Finance, Sean McEntee. And he said that the Minister for Finance, Sean McEntee, had a soul buried in jazz music and that he was selling the musical soul of the nation for the dividends of jazz music and that he was jazzing every night of the week. Mm -hmm. And this generated a great controversy. Sean McEntee was a very formidable politician and veteran of the War of Independence. And he was being accused of using 2RN in order to try and and generate income for this new service uh, by taking on the sponsorship of programmes, which was quite controversial at that time. Mm -hmm. And there was a backlash to that assertion because at that Mohill meeting in 1933 they were able to read out messages of support from people like Douglas Hyde the first president of the Gaelic League from Eamon de Valera who accepted that there was a need to concentrate on forms of Irish dance and they had support from various quarters but this was a very political intervention by Sean Ogokialig now Conifree defended him at the time and subsequently but Sean Ogokialig was then due to go on radio, on 2RN, to deliver a lecture the following week on Irish culture, its demise, that was the title of the lecture, and it was pulled. And it was the Minister, Jerry Boland, who was Minister for Post and Telegraphs, they were responsible for the radio service, who said that he wasn't going to allow him, even though the script had been approved, he didn't trust him not to make an unscripted remark. Okay, well let's um, go back now to what was being said in County Leitrim by Father Peter Connerfrey, because we have managed to dig up some eyewitness testimony on this. Maggie Mitchell was a schoolgirl in Clune, who knew Father Conifrey and she spoke to RT Radio about her memories of the man and his views on Irish music and on jazz. He loved the Irish music. As children, we used to go to his parochial house for about half an hour at night and um, do the dances, you know, as the musicians played. We would only be allowed to stay half an hour. As soon as we had our dances done, we had to leave. And all the children around the village came in, you know, at times. Every month or so, he'd have something like that happening. He wasn't very fond, I believe, of, of jazz music. Oh, no. He resented that very much. He just wanted the Irish music and nothing else. And do you ever remember him saying anything about that? Well, I do. I remember on the altar. He used to talk a lot about it, a lot against it, you know. He just wanted the people to um, learn the Irish music and play it. 
Mm, that's uh, Maggie Mitchell remembering back. That's taken, by the way, from a doc on one about all of this, which is well worth going back and having a listen to. You mentioned dance halls earlier, and that's a really interesting part of the jigsaw here, because for a finish, the priests sort of took charge of the dance halls. They took control of them, didn't they? Well, what's interesting about the response to this anti-jazz campaign is that there is a commitment on the part of politicians to do something about this. You know, they accept there needs to be more uh, airing of traditional Irish music and that there needs to be more supervision of unsupervised dances. And again, we can trace these themes through many of the assertions of of leading Catholic social activists at the time that these were the cause, these unlicensed dance halls or or, or dances were the cause of many a fall of a young woman. And we have the Carrigan Committee of that era in the early 1930s, which was actually looking into the operation of the criminal law in relation to sexual crime and juvenile juvenile prostitution. And they also refer uh, to these new modes of amusement and how they are contributing to a general moral decline and degeneracy. They're making very uh, sweeping assertions about it, but the dance hall is always singled out yeah, but that, that, uh, as but being a problem. Was that the report that didn't mention social deprivation and poverty and the general social conditions? Well, some of the, the civil servants at the time, when they were reacting to the uh, Carrigan Committee report, which was not published because of the explosive content, they were critical uh, that they didn't focus on unemployment and housing and education, that they seemed to be preoccupied with prostitution and they seemed to be preoccupied with um, sexual sin. Uh, some of the civil servants of the Department of Justice were, were quite scathing about that because they were making these really blanket assertions mm-hmm. uh, about wholesale moral demise, which was not, of course, in keeping with, with what many people felt was the cultural ethos of the free state at that point. But there is a commitment to do something about dance halls and it does ultimately result in the Dance, dance Halls Act of 1935, which is about district justices having the power to grant or refuse licences and it's about much more careful supervision. Uh, now, interestingly, you know, some of the dance halls then were moved to parochial halls. So parish priests could apply for a licence to have a dance in the parochial hall where there could be very close uh, supervision. And we have this image, of course, of, of the likes of Father Peter Conifree with the, the, the blackthorn stick, uh, you know, roaming uh, the back roads and trying to, to belt randy youngsters out of ditches. Uh, and again, some of that is very exaggerated. The Dance Halls Act was not necessarily always successful um, because there were still clubs that organised their own dances outside of of the reach of the dance halls uh, legislation. The GEA was also singled out sometimes for organising dances in order to raise funds uh, that weren't properly supervised. So it's not that the priests had complete command and control uh, Mm -hmm. over this, but certainly it was a recognition on the part of the state uh, that they did need to tighten the uh, regulation and the supervision of these dance halls. But there were also other relevant factors such as fire and safety concerns, uh, you know, that if you didn't have a a tight regime for this, there could be other problems. But it was a reflection, again, of that need for the uh, state to be seen to intervene in order to try and regulate social life. Now, it never succeeded ultimately in suppressing uh, what they deemed to be the objectionable So was that the only concession that the state gave to the anti-jazz campaigners or were there other things that they did to appease them? Not really. No, it kind of peters out. It doesn't last last uh, very long, p- partly because of these ill-judged uh, political interventions, but also because um, these things were popular. What was referred to as imported slush, that was another favourite phrase, uh, there was a reason why they had to keep denouncing these things, because there was an appetite for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were never able to suppress that fully. An awful lot of the cultural nationalists of that era had cut their teeth uh, w- with the Gaelic revival of the late 19th and early 20th century. And there was a real focus during that on reviving a traditional form 
of Irish dance, which is a reminder that Irish dance actually had wilder roots. They were trying to refine what they had regarded as something that was uh, becoming uncontrollable. You know, dancers with wild abandon. This is even Irish dance. Um, and yes, they do succeed to a degree in trying to, to get the Gaelic League, for example, to a to agree on an, a new national form of dancing that, as the bishops put it in 1925, is not degenerate uh, dancing. But that would also suggest that there was an older tradition of people doing as they wished. Uh, and in many ways, that continued. Uh, and it, I mean, even today, the popularity of jazz, I mean, we have a hugely popular um, annual jazz weekend in Cork, uh, which is over 45 years old now. Uh, and even at a later stage, you had the the importation, the show band craze, you know, a great appetite for the music yeah. uh, from abroad. But there's a parallel very interesting debate going on about what the function of a national broadcaster is. You know, why are they broadcasting gramophone music? Why are they broadcasting uh, jazz music? Well, people only heard it in the snippets of the commercial sponsorship moments. So for people to hear that, to love it, and then to want to hear it outside of that, it just shows, as you say, how much of an appetite Well, they get a taste for it it as well. But there was a lot of debate as well about what is jazz? Because there was this, again, blanket assertion uh, that everything that wasn't traditional Irish music was jazz music and at one stage in the Doyle of Fianna Fáil TD in 1936 asked that question what is jazz and he gave the answer himself he believed that it was a cross between a waltz and all in wrestling <laughs> uh, so some of these definitions <laughs> be, uh, become very bizarre but you see the anti-jazz campaign was also about targeting the local authorities so you can read in early 1934 that Waterford Corporation receives a request from the Gaelic League to pass a resolution uh, against the promotion of jazz music and it's passed by 12 votes to 10. Mm-hmm. But what I find interesting about that vote is that it's so tight. Uh, you know, 12 votes to 10. There were 10 voices yes. there that, that didn't want this. Brave it also souls. came up at, at, at Dublin Corporation as well. So, you know, there was a certain unease about trying to bring this into the political realm. Yeah. Uh, but that wider culture debate is going on and even in relation to broadcasting, exactly 100 years ago in February 1924, uh, there was a debate uh, about whether or not 2RN should be state-funded, fully state-funded or should have some kind of private enterprise. This is a you know, a, a wider debate about the BBC as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the concern was that uh, if it was left to private uh, funding, that they wouldn't be able to have the same cultural control and that this had to be fitted into the idea of state building uh, and promoting culture within the new state. Right. Uh, and there were lots of questions raised about what was the appropriate funding model uh, for the national broadcaster, but also what function did it serve in relation to the promotion of Irish culture uh, and the mediating of a, a national well, look, cultural consciousness. How far we've come, Dermot. Isn't that <laughs> what we say today? Thank you so much. That's uh, Professor Dermot Ferreter. And if you want to go back, the doc on one, you'll find that uh, documentary about the anti-jazz movement, a fascinating look back. Thank you very much for coming in. We'll take a break back after this. Text 51551 Today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1.